This is uh, Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. As always, your host, Brandon, join my host, Nick. No, Dan, because it is an early morning recording session. That's right, Matt Law special back on the books. Matt, it has been far too long since we've chatted, but that's because nothing's happened in a few weeks. Well, nothing has happened, and yet an awful lot has happened. <laughs> Just as it is always with Chelsea, when there's no football, there's still an awful lot of stories and an awful lot of work to be done. So uh, no rest for the wicked, shall we say. I mean, we were we were talking a little bit before the show that, you know, it's it'll be the best part of three plus weeks since Chelsea have, have played a football match on Saturday. And in that three weeks, you know, there's been a, a royal funeral. There, there's been a bunch of departures from the club. There's been the announcement of the multi-club. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that has happened kind of off the pitch. But, yeah, it, it does... I think you were right. It does feel like the season's starting over again a little bit. Yeah, I mean, because of um, it being Graham's first Premier League game in charge and because of this weird break with the break in fixtures because of the Queen dying and also the international break, it really does feel like, for me, for in, for, in terms of covering Chelsea, it feels like the start of the season again. It really does. Um, and and before, we, you, you always have... I always find the start of the season weird when the transfer window is still open because everybody's concentration sort of remains on who's coming and who's going more than the football. Um, I'll be very, I've got to be honest, and I know I shouldn't say this as a journalist, but I'll be very, very relieved if we could have a few weeks of reporting on the football and concentrate on the football rather than everything. <laughs> I suspect I've got a few more weeks of not being able to do that, to be quite honest with you. Well, we'll, we'll, I'll have to see how it all shakes out. Uh, but to, to your point, a lot of a lot of things have happened. So we're going to go around and, and see what's happened behind the scenes in the club during the last few weeks at Chelsea and and, and maybe a little bit of a look ahead to the future. Uh, September now, but with that World Cup, that January transfer window is already uh, getting loaded up, it sounds like. So uh, the first thing that we want to touch on was the amazingly quick U-turn that Freund's no longer sporting director candidate uh we felt like we were close at the last second decided to stay home um so how 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 did that all kind of come around in those 72 hours yeah i mean it actually it first of all came around a week or so before that i think i first wrote a story on freud and, and i know a few other people did um it he emerged as a name from nowhere i was in lisbon with tottenham for the champions league so right around, obviously, when Salzburg were, were over here with Chelsea. Um, and it was just a few days before that I'd first started to hear little rumours of his name before we, we sort of managed to stand up. And actually, at that point, um, it was already well down the line. I mean, we, we, we found came to the name quite late in terms of where the negotiations were. He'd met Chelsea then a few times. Talks were quite advanced. There was a lot of confidence. And then... Fast forward from there a few more days, uh, maybe up until the following weekend, um, Chelsea thought they had an agreement with him. I think he'd actually told them he was going to come. Um, and then he did. He performed the U-term. I think Salzburg put a little bit of pressure on him, um, said they weren't going to make it easy for him, made it clear that he'd only just signed a contract. I think probably he's been made promises uh, by the Red Bull franchise in terms of his his potential career path there. I don't think anything immediately, but in terms of where, what they think he could develop into within the franchise. And very quickly, he changed his mind. Some people, you say, 
some people might say he slightly bottled it, um, from what I understand, because I think he's very comfortable in Austria from what I'm told. He very much enjoys the lifestyle. He actually did a similar thing with Ajax. He had talks with Ajax um, during the summer after Mark Overmars had, had left Ajax. Maybe it was a bit longer ago than the summer. And they thought they'd got him as well. And again, he pulls out of the Ajax one. So there is a slight feeling around him that that potentially is a little bit too comfortable at Salzburg. But yeah, it was uh, one day it looked like it was all done. And I think Chelsea thought they had their man. And literally the next day he changed his mind. But these things happen. So so in, in your reporting, bullying team had been working on this for, let's just say, a few weeks, right? You, you don't move people yeah. like this over a period yeah. of like 48 hours. Um and unlike some of the transfer stuff this summer, which felt like very cat and mouse competitive, this was just kind of a guy making a choice to stay where he was uh, more than it was the the bully team not getting their way, right? I mean, it, it sounds like he didn't really want to leave home. It was a per- yeah, it became a personal choice, and it, it might be unfair on him, but that's why I, I think there might be a little sense around him, not from Chelsea, I should say, just from a few sort of sources I've spoken to um, who who think maybe he, he, he slightly bottled it, that he he's too comfortable where he is and, and didn't want to take that career career risk, although it's probably a good risk, I would argue. But uh, yeah, just very much a personal choice. And, and as simple as one day he told them he thought he was coming and he was going to sort it out with Salzburg, went away, changed his mind and told them he wasn't coming. Sometimes things are just that simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know we were talking to you this summer about just kind of reporting in this new Chelsea reality where the whole, you know, I mean, the whole apple cart's been kind of flipped up and down. Like, is this story one of those where you're like, wow, like the, t- the twists and turns in this new environment are, are even more dramatic than, than what I had before? Or is it just different? Uh, no, there were a lot of twists and turns with the last, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the nature of the beast with transfers and, and yeah. manager appointments and things. I remember lots of stories that have twists and turns at Chelsea where one minute they look done, the next minute they're not done, or from absolutely nowhere, all of a sudden they're just done like that. It, it is just the nature of football. It probably looks a bit that way and feels a bit that way because it is a new regime. There has been a slight sense of chaos around it, which I think they would completely admit to um, and and not try to deny. Um, but yeah, I, I think it... it, it it's just the nature. It's just the nature of these things. You can try and hire someone. I think the one thing I would say that's potentially different between the last regime and this one at the moment is that um, things might be leaking a little bit earlier. So mm. in the last regime, people like myself would probably find out about things when they were further down the line, and when you did find out about them, there was probably a little bit more confidence that if it wasn't done, it was ninety percent done. Um, whereas things maybe have leaked out a bit earlier in this one. But as I say, actually, at one point with Freund, I'm, I'm pretty confident it, it told Chelsea he was coming. So from that perspective, it was a long way down the line. Uh, so with that, though, you just published that, you know, this is still high priority for the club and, yep. and for the owners. Uh, it sounds like they're looking at Leverkusen leads. You know, is there an update on kind of this journey for a sporting director and technical there's two roles, right? Well, I suppose that is the newest update. I mean, this has been speculated around now for a little while about whether it would just be a sporting director, whether it'd be a sporting director plus a technical director or a general manager type. Now, look, 
things as we've just spoke about can change and it will depend it will depend on candidates in terms of who takes which jobs but at the moment they are working towards a model of trying to appoint a sporting director and a technical director two jobs two separate roles i'm told interviewing two well not two external candidates but external candidates for both jobs um and ideally at this stage they would like to have two new people in two new jobs as so sporting director and technical director the only way that might change is if whoever they end up going for on a sporting director side is actually already some sort of director of football and therefore you can't really bring someone into to kind of manage with him or work alongside him so the candidates will shape that a little bit but that is what they are working towards now so i think that is probably the newest part of information we currently have on it and, and just to be clear about the hierarchy the sporting director is above the technical director the technical director then works directly with the manager <laughs> to report up to the sport like i right i'm going to tell you what i think it is from a few discussions but i've got to be honest you know i don't know for sure the sporting director from what i can tell and the way it is seen within the club is probably going to be uh some sort of data specialist mm. um who will also have probably a role in recruitment but is very much his job is involved as the title suggests in looking into the data to help the sporting side of the club, basically the football. But it would be, I think it would would take in men's, women's and academy because they, they keep talking about this culture and this collaborative culture. The technical director, I see as being more of a general manager type job or some sort of head of football operations type job. I think he would be more responsible for the relationships between the head coach and the board the players and the board, the players and the coach, uh, possibly contracts um, and linking the various elements of Cobham together. This is quite hard to explain why, but I've had this told to me a few times by people who have worked at Chelsea, particularly head coaches, that Cobham, Cobham can eat you up a little bit. It's a sprawling big place with a lot of staff and it's impossible for a head coach who's got all, all his relate, uh, responsibilities with the men's team to manage Cobham. And even for someone, say, who's a sporting director, whose main responsibility is to crunch data, both on the current team and, and potential signings and stuff. Again, that's going to take a lot of time. A lot of people who have worked at, at Chelsea talk about the need to have someone managing Cobham. And I think that's, that would be my reading of where the technical director comes in. Which is a very reasonable, I think, take, uh, you know. I think, I've just to butt in, I've always said that if the sporting director is going to be a data guy, which the sporting director doesn't have to be a data guy, but that it seems to be that they want it to be a data guy, you know, not to be disrespectful, but a bit of a sort of computer nerd, then if you're going to bring that kind of profile in, then I think you have to bring the general manager type profile in as well, because I think it, it won't it won't solve everything just to have someone staring at a computer all day. It will help one, it will help one very small section of, of what they need help on. But in actual fact, I, I've always agreed with the fact that you need someone managing those relationships. And, and let's face it, you know, we've seen it before. Conte, for instance, the minute Michael Emanardo left Chelsea, Conte's, Conte's relationship with the club fell apart because all of a sudden he was having to deal directly with people he'd never dealt with before and they just they couldn't make it work. Yeah. No, for right. sure. 
Brandon, for every Dan, you need a me and you, right? So, <laughs> so let's just, just frame it up appropriately. That's all I'm saying. Uh, it looks like a couple of names have been thrown out there. Tim Steeden from Leverkusen and Victor Orta from, from Leeds. Are they, again, for which job? I don't even really know at this point, but they've been linked to Chelsea. <laughs> so these, these two are good, good examples. So Tim Steeden um, is very similar profile to Christoph Freund. Um, not a high profile name, not a guy who's known to sort of manage the club, very much a data specialist, very heavy on the recruitment side. Chelsea actually, I believe, dealt directly with him over Callum's loan move to Leverkusen. I think mm. that was done with him, so there's a relationship there. Um, and I would very much see him as a sporting director. And again, if you take someone like that with who's a very sort of low profile guy, he's never going to come in and manage Cobham and and deal with all the relationships. So that would leave open the technical director. I'm not saying for sure it will be Tim Stighton. They've definitely spoken to him. He's certainly on the radar. Whether it ends up being him at the moment, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, but he would leave over the technical director. Victor Orta is an interesting one because he, he has had contact from Chelsea for sure. Um, I would be surprised if they actually end up appointing him, but he has had contact from Chelsea. He would fit way more i would say on the side of the technical director role and yet he also has a big hand in, obviously a very big hand in recruitment at Leeds. so whether he's someone who would alter that plan of having two because he's he sort of does both roles at Leeds because he's the director of football i don't know like i say i think it's probably doubtful that it ends up being him but i know that they've had they've certainly had contact with him i actually really like victor Orta's profile i think he's an interesting guy um albeit very emotional and slightly controversial. Very good for the press. <laughs> At Leeds? No, absolutely not. Um, I guess are there, I, I, I'm scared to ask you this. Are there any other names <laughs> that have popped up during this uh, three-week hiatus uh, where, where we thought we had our guy, then we didn't have our guy, or are they kind of just back to the drawing board a little bit? Yeah, look, I think they've got their names. In terms of me knowing them all and becoming public, there's, I think there's more that they're, I'm told there are uh, several names of people they're talking to that hasn't, come out in the press yet and I don't know about yet. Steiton after Freund was the first name that I was told. Um, I think that that's realistic. But yeah, I I wouldn't pay too much attention to the Lewis Campos, the Monchies of this world personally. I don't think that fits the profile of person they're talking about. Um, I mean, they're, they're going to get linked because they're so high profile. And I think Campos is very good at linking himself with a lot of a lot of posts to make himself look good, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see it being one of those very, very, very high profile sort of uh, high PR type of guys. I'd be surprised at that. Well, and Nick, another factor that it sounds like uh, they will be taking into consideration was the multi-club model that Bully dropped at the uh, Salt Expo. Um, and he kind of elaborated a little bit on countries, kind of what he's looking to do. And obviously these roles would... You know, you I can't really see another way where they're not involved in, in this longer term vision of his. Yeah, it's like it's like kind of connective tissue in that sort of model, right, Matt? You have to understand what's going on in places like Portugal, Brazil, Belgium, even the US to have a well run operation. That's I think why Freud was so idealistic for, for this role because he, he currently operates within that structure at at RBs. Look at everyone they've appointed so far. Um, Tom Glick, president of business in the City Football Group, multi-club, yep. 
Um, they've made other appointments from the, the City Football Group uh, who have worked there. One hasn't gone so well as I reported on last week. Yeah, uh, but there's there's a clear there's a clear attraction to people who have worked within that model. The City Football Group appointments, and now also obviously Freund being a, a Red Bull guy. Um, they'd obviously like that experience of having worked within that model. And it's, even with Bowley saying it, it's clearly signpost what, what they feel is important and what they want to do. It's also come to light, I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago when Freund was first linked, that the meet, famous meeting in Portugal between Bowley and Mendes uh, that Neil Bath was also at, that I think Ronaldo was first broached at and made all the headlines. Actually, a large part of that meeting was actually about trying to buy a Portuguese club. Um, Neil Bath, I think, was there to talk exactly about what kind of club Chelsea would want and, and the development path and, and what it could offer. And obviously, Mendes was there to advise on, on what might be available and, and costing and all that kind of thing. So certainly the Portuguese club's been looked at very closely. I think they've already looked at some clubs in Brazil. I'm told there are agents working in Belgium for them, trying to identify good clubs there. So certainly I can see within the next couple of years, Portugal, Belgium, Brazil uh, being real hotspots for them. The Portuguese league, actually, having been out to Lisbon and and just got a little flavour of of that league and the development paths and what it can lead to, it's actually a great, when you think about what a feeder league can give, outside the top five European leagues, that's got to be the number one league to try and have some sort of feeder club um, where you can really develop players at a good level who can get European experience uh, to then to then bring in. And there's, there's been so many examples at the moment of, of players coming from that Portuguese league to, to the Premier League and doing well as well. So that looks a great fit. Belgium, obviously Chelsea have had great success with in the past. And, and Brazil obviously gives you that opportunity to, to bed in maybe young foreign players who you actually can't bring over to Europe at a certain age. Are there any, at this point, club names being mentioned? Or is it still very much like broad, we're interested in the entire offering and we're not going to mention anything as, you know, so we don't get leveraged again? <laughs> you should be my sports editor. I ring up my sports editor and I've got a good story <laughs> for you. Chelsea have had talks about buying a Portuguese club. He says, great, great, great story, writer. You'll ring me back 10 minutes later. Have you got the name of the club they're buying yet? I'm like, come on, give me a chance. No, <laughs> you should be my sports editor. No, I mean, that, that, will, be, that will be very, very sort of privy information because that, that would be hugely sensitive if it came out before um, any sort of major talks or agreements have been taken with the club. So I think the, the uh, identity of clubs won't come out until very late in the process, if at all, even before they actually manage to purchase one. I certainly don't know specific names. Oh, and not to derail this, we can talk about it as we get sooner to it. But like now I'm thinking of an ownership structure because, you know, there's there's regulations of, you know, owning different clubs and, and, and restrictions. But obviously it's possible because, you know, City Football Group and RB have done it. But I, I'll just be fascinated in kind of that side of like the, the structures yeah. and the entities um, involved. Todd Todd Bowley um, referenced in the in that that Salt talk. He referenced the fact that Leipzig and Salzburg have managed to do it under the Red Bull umbrella in a way that they can both play in the Champions League. It used to be that we all assumed that it was actually impossible to do that. So I don't know how you do it. I've got to be honest, but you you clearly can, and there's clearly ways in terms of the stake that you own in certain clubs. I think it's all to do with a percentage stake. 
and how much control within that stake. I think there's maybe some sort of 30% threshold on the second club, as it were. That's about the extent of my knowledge on it. Um, but it's doable. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. of the matter, it's clearly doable. It's actually, it's interesting because this hasn't hit with City yet, but obviously in Germany and sort of Austria, the Red, the Red Bull group is really unpopular. They are hated outside those clubs because what people feel it's done to football over there and, and how it's exaggerated the market. Um, that hasn't really been leveled at City yet, but I also think that's an interesting strand moving forward about how, whether it would invoke quite a lot of criticism or not. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, we, uh, we wouldn't know anything about being hated though. So <laughs> frankly, I, I think we're on the good foot here, Brandon. I don't know about you. Just well, smooth sailing. Perfect segue. Cause we did hire England's <laughs> media darling, Graham Potter. So after the ad break, we're going to jump into Potter, uh, and kind of what's ahead for him. So thank you to the sponsors for financially supporting the show and we'll be right back. So Graham Potter, uh, for those of you who've forgotten, Chelsea appointed a new head coach uh, some weeks back. Uh, it's been a while. Um, he's been hanging out at Cobham, uh, doing some work over the international break. It's definitely not been as much of a preseason as I think some people thought because, surprise, Chelsea have a lot of internationals in their team. Um, so I guess what's your understanding of what Graham has been doing um, and, and kind of what, what's been going on at Cobham? We know there's been... One closed-door scrimmage with Brighton, another one with a, a lower-division team. There were starters for one, starters not for the other. What's been going on? Not a lot, to be honest with you. Um, they had they pretty much the, the internationals, the, the players who, first-team players who weren't on international duty actually were given quite a lot of time off last week and have only really properly come back to work on, on Monday. So last week, it's pretty quiet. I think, Graham, I think it's been around in the press a bit, and or, to be honest, all managers do it. Um, has spent a bit of time trying to have personal chats with players, whether it be over the phone, in person, over Zoom, whatever. He's obviously spent a lot of time with his staff. He'll have spent a lot of time on the facilities and, and looking at various things. But in terms of player-wise, I think at one stage when he did have the players in either late last week or this week, I think he had four players, from what I'm told, at one stage. You know, there's, there's just not been anybody around. Um I'm not sure Edouard Mendy's been able to train yet because of the injury that he's had, for instance. So I'm not convinced that the new goalkeeper coach has managed to work with Edouard Mendy yet. Um, we'll find out from, from Graham Potter on Friday whether he's still in injury doubt for the weekend. But if he hasn't trained yet, you'd imagine he will be. Um, so, yeah, just it's, it's, it's probably been really weird. I mean, there's, there's arguments to be made on both sides. I think you can spin it up whichever way you like, that this is really useful for him. And it gives him some time to bed in, or it's actually a little bit disruptive because he's come in and not really being able to work with anyone and just kind of been hanging around a little bit, waiting for everyone to get back to to start some work, having had that one game. So it'll have been a funny time. It's a funny time for everyone around the Premier League at the moment. It's partic probably a particular strange and funny time for him, but it will have at least allowed his staff time to settle in. There's a lot of logistical stuff, obviously, to sort out when, you know, a whole staff move over to a different club in terms of where they're living and what they're doing. So at least, I suppose, on that perspective, it's probably quite boring for fans, but it's allowed them to get bedded in so that when the work starts, they haven't got other things going on in their lives. So, yeah, that, that's that's probably it. It's probably not that interesting, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> I mean, these... We all know these matches, you know, right after the international break, the weekend after an international break can yield some surprises. They can yield some flat performances, you know, and, and rightfully so. You're playing, 
you know, high level international football during a period where uh, some players get rest, some players play. Right. So, I mean, any idea what kind of selection headache he might have going into Palace this week? I mean, this is a Palace team, by the way, that has played, I think, above themselves so far this year. They've looked pretty good, um, have given a lot of teams a, a run so far. So this is it, it not going to be some sort of cakewalk to get back into. Well, Palace actually, I just disagree slightly because in points-wise, Palace actually are probably slightly disappointing. I think they've got about six points at the moment. I'll agree with you, the performance is actually... They've, they, I mean, for instance, they gave Arsenal a good run but lost. Um, and they are, yep. they can be a tricky team. I mean, obviously, if you go to Selhurst and they get off to a fast start, it's it's a difficult place. The atmosphere gets going. Chelsea, however, in the last few years, have got a very, very good record against Crystal Palace generally. Um, so I think that that will be in the back of a few players' minds. But it's, it's in terms of the selection issues and the headaches, look, as I just said, I think the goalkeeper... It's an issue because Mendy, I don't think, has done much training, if any training at all. So even if he now comes back into training at the back end of the week, do you have to stick with Kepa for that game? Um, I didn't think Kepa was great on the goal against Salzburg from what I saw on the highlights. I still have my reservations about him, but I actually have my reservations about Mendy at the moment too. I think the goalkeeper, actually, I wrote it within a piece I did today about Duke at Bellingham. I think the goalkeeper is one to watch over this season. Um, I think there'll be a lot of assessment done over whether or not to go for a goalkeeper next summer, depending on how the rest of the season plays out a little bit. Um, now, the rest of the headaches are going to be really hard to call with Graham Potter because, as we joked before the show, <laughs> you just don't know where he's going to play everybody. <laughs> um, whether Raheem sort of plays at this side kind of left winger stroke, left wing back role again. Uh, Kulabali is interesting. Um, he could have problems getting back into that team, I think, for quite some time. Um, so there'll, there'll, there'll be an interesting one there. And then also, is there a way for Carney to get Carney Chukwemeka to, to get some sort of opportunity yet? Um, I've probably got a slight obsession with him because he left Villa to go there. So I want to see how that pans out for him. Um, but I am told in the background in, in training and I think in some of these closed behind, behind closed doors game, I'm told he's caught the eye a little bit, that he's done quite well. So whether I, I don't see him starting a game anytime soon, and you know, other than maybe the Carabao when that comes back around, but can he get a little bit closer to it? Can he get off the bench a bit more? He might do, from what I hear in, in terms of how he's been doing in the background. So he'll be an interesting one. And then I think again, this is really probably the start of Aubameyang's Chelsea career. You know, very very difficult circumstances. He came into the team before he'd just had that horrendous robbery at his house. I couldn't believe the mental strength that some of these footballers have sometimes to have stuff like that happen mm -hmm. and then a few days later play football because I can't begin to imagine what that would be like. Um, and he's had the face mask on, which I think probably he's, he's going to have on at least for the Palace game. But um, given that he's now had a bit of time to bed in, the robbery is now behind him, the two-call departure, which will have obviously been a huge shock to him given his relationship with him, I think probably we can call it the start of Aubameyang's Chelsea career from from here. So... That, that that's an interesting element as well um with that uh you know i think that there's also you know the the commitment from the owners right that they're gonna have to digest some less than desirable results along the way as graham kind of figures some stuff out uh look october there's 
I think, over 10 matches to be played for Chelsea. It's going to come Nine? come fast. Uh, maybe maybe the 10th game is at, like, November 1st, 2nd, you know, Champions oh, League yeah. away, like, or whichever one. So, anyways, uh, a lot, though, right? Playing every two and a half, three days. Um, I mean, the... We're, I guess we're going to find out what kind of resolve the owners have if some things go sideways for a little bit, but we're, we're obviously I'm, I'm interested in the fans. I've got to be honest as well. I'm, I'm interested in the fans because the last time Chelsea hired a philosophy manager, the fans didn't like him. You know, Maurizio Sarri, he was not like Graham Potter at all. He was a very unengaging man and a very distant man. And that, I think, probably had more to do with the fact that the fans didn't like him than his his style of football but i'm i'm interested to see whether the fans can buy into potentially having to give it a little bit of time as well i hope they do um and i know lots of intelligent Chelsea fans like you guys who who will be willing to but i think it will be a culture change for some fans to start with because i i, I agree i think there could be a few rocky rows ahead i think brighton last season went through a spell where they lost four on the trot and they had a spell where they barely scored a goal and these, when you're working towards something in terms of a philosophy and a culture change, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have um, some, some, to coin the phrase of a manager, some difficult moments. And Chelsea, like I say, with Sari, Chelsea fans, I think, found that tough to stick with. Um, so I'm, I'm, other than the owners, who I believe are sort of uh, invested in giving it time, are the fans, and then if the fans aren't, does that then impact on whether the fa- whether the owners are? Because it's very difficult if you're an owner to remain invested in a philosophy and things taking time if you've got the whole ground getting annoyed with it. So, I mean, hopefully we won't go through this, but I'm, I, I think it's an interesting time all round because, as I said, traditionally under under the Abramovich era, it wasn't really philosophy managers as such. Well. AVB worked so well, Nick. <laughs> yeah, no, he did um, famously. But yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I think coupled with everything that's gone on, there's just been a lot of shakeup. There's been a lot of change, right? Um, one of the more recent things that has happened uh, are you know a lot of other departmental shakeups. I mean, obviously, you had the the firing last week of of Willoughby, which you know he was here for all of like three or four weeks, so that's you know won't be missed, but there's been a huge shakeup with the medical department. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, m- maybe it's harsh, but anytime you have a team with as many injuries as Chelsea's had over the last few years, like this isn't like out of the realm of possibility, not to say that it's any of these people's faults that Ingle Conte was played too much in, in 2019 by Maurizio Sarri or whatever. But um, it, it, I mean, we have seen Dr. Paco Biaska go, who was the chief medical chief. We've seen Thierry Laurent, the head physio go. Um, you mentioned in your article that the fact that Todd Bowley sent Wesley Fafana to the States for his evaluation before they signed him was pretty telling. Um, maybe kind of dive in here. Yeah. Yeah. When you look back, that's a big signpost, isn't it? It's one mm-hmm. of those things where at the time you may be, you don't quite see it because there's a lot going on. It was right in the middle of a transfer window. There was a lot. And you hear about these things and it's, it's vaguely interesting. In actual fact, when you look back in hindsight, given what's happened this this last week or so in terms of the change in the medical department, that's actually a huge signpost. That, that's a, that's a, a flag to tell you that they don't quite trust the, the medical 
department at, at Chelsea and that they think that they've got better facilities and better medical people over at the Dodgers um, to look at Fafana and make sure that he's not going to break down. So from that point on, it's probably only heading one way. Um, look, certainly Paco Biosca and Thierry Laurent have both been at, at Chelsea for as long as I can remember, quite frankly. I mean, I think Paco went back to 2011, Thierry Laurent's sort of 17 years or something. They're real, real staples. Um, so from that perspective, it'll be difficult. I think probably the ownership would argue that they want something a little bit more cutting edge, a little bit more in line with what they have in America. And that's what they'll be implementing once they get the people they want in. Feels a little bit harsh on the guys who, who've who been there being sacked because I think it's it's been pretty quick and, and pretty ruthless. Um, but, you know... These are successful guys who own them and you don't be successful without being ruthless. I'd like to just tell my one Paco story while we haven't, because yeah. I've, I've had experiences with Paco and he's always been very, very nice to me. And I know with some of the players, he's very popular. And during lockdown, um, Paco wasn't able to obviously sit on the bench when it was the games behind closed doors. So I was sat in the media section. We actually sat in the, the fan seats just in front of where the media box is and all sat very spaced apart. And for one game, the closest person to me was actually Paco. It was the home defeat by Arsenal when Jorginho made a terrible error. Do you remember when oh, Chelsea, yeah, yeah. Chelsea battered Arsenal and lost 1-0 when and Jorginho made a terrible error? And it was that game. And it was, very, it was very interesting watching it with him because he was getting so frustrated and he was very disparaging about the way Arsenal played. But the one thing I'll always remember is ahead of kickoff when the players took the knee is that Paco, who is 69 now, so would have been 68 or 67, and can, you know walks along with a limp, um, took the knee along with all the players ahead of kickoff. And I really feared that I was going to have to lift him back off his knee because I wasn't sure he <laughs> managed to get back up. But it also made me feel quite bad because we all sat there doing nothing. And this, this old guy who's obviously got really terrible dodgy knees is still taking the knee with all the players in the stands. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, cigar chain smoking... I think there's picture. If you Google his name, you'll find pictures of him smoking cigars with Eden Hazard after probably the Europa League win. He, he's a character. He was a character. Well, um, you know, I think to that point, medical is always a big thing for the fans. We were talking how, you know, the, the, there's a time when Arsenal was just soft tissue injury after soft tissue injury. Chelsea went on a two, three, young, two to three year run with essentially out a single injury at all. And, and that is just so important when Todd Bully and company are, are investing the sums of money are, that they are in these players, they need them to be healthy and available. And clearly they've seen something. We're not going to know how this pays out until, you know, the end of the season and they get someone else hired and they get kind of, uh, you know, their rhythm with, with everybody too. But uh, it's massive because when, if you go through who the, the league winners, you'll often find it's no, it's no sort of big secret or, or anything scientifically amazing but the, the, the league winners will generally be the team of those top teams who have kept the most players fit as yep. well as, you know as well as other things but if you look at it they'll have also the, the teams who have the problems with you know the years that when Liverpool have the problems with injuries with Van Dijk and people the years they slip away the, the ones who win the league and I go back to Chelsea when they last won the league with, with this will be the teams who have managed to keep the most players fit through a season as well as everything else the fine margins now with the, the level that all that the top teams are at, the fine margins are so so important. Well, you you uh, you lost a, a comrade on the on the comm side as well during this break. It was kind of a, a surprise to me, anyway. Uh, Steve Atkins, who's who's been with Chelsea forever, and 
uh, who you know we've seen uh, many times uh, in press rooms as well, uh, has departed from McLaren. Uh, I mean, this is obviously someone that you've interfaced with pretty directly over the years. Any thoughts on his departure and any other likely shuffles that you see coming down the road? Story, story. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, he goes, I think, on December the 1st, so he's still active at the moment and, and working. Look, he's, he's very good at his role. I, I find it funny, and he finds it funny when he sees people reply to stories on Twitter about him going about, there's your source gone or there's your leak gone. Oh, my God. Steve's never given me stories in 15 years of covering Chelsea. He's extremely professional and works very well when you ring him up to put a story to him, which is basically the role he plays. Um, I, you know, in, in journalism, you have to check stories and things like this, and, and that will be his role. Um, he would certainly be never, in a million, it'd have never lasted the amount of time he has if he was handing out stories and leaks, put it that way. Um, but he, he's extremely good at his job. And to be honest with you, he's probably um, one of the most senior communications directors uh, within football, you know, Chelsea would go to these away Champions League dinners um, under the previous regime because the board was so small. You'd often find that these these away pre, pre, uh, Champions League dinners that Steve would actually be part of them. He would know the presidents and the directors of many of the top European clubs as well as being involved on the comm side. He would sit with the board. He wasn't part of the board and he's not part of the new board, but he's always worked extremely closely, probably closer than a traditional head of communications would do. It's very important role as well. I mean, the, these people are largely responsible for the the image of the club. They they have to try and preserve the image of the club and and the good of the club, and particularly a club like Chelsea that's had so much sort of changes and controversy and chaos around it. Whenever they've been winning, it, it's a, it's a massive job for someone. Um, and I think they've got a guy coming in on the commercial comm side again, a City Football Group guy. But I suspect they will have to hire some sort of well, either hire a football communications guy, or I should say there are some excellent people who work in that communications department who would be more than more than ready to to step up and have more responsibility and 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 given more of a go and, and people brought in to, to maybe help them under them. Um either way, there will be a little bit of change there. But yeah, it's uh it it won't seem significant to fans that that Steve Atkins is leaving. But in in the the culture of a club and the way a club operates is actually a pretty significant departure as, as well as some of the other behind the scenes guys who've left. Well, um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, it sounds like there's a lot of chatter about Bully's January plans and they are already planning to go big. Uh, one thing we didn't get to talk to you is about Pulisic's quote coming out from his upcoming book. Uh, apparently oh, yeah. he's looking to go to Juventus, but I'm sure you have maybe a, a penny for your thoughts on that one. <laughs> yeah. He wants to read a Christian Pulisic book. That's my thought. Not me. I'll Apparently leave neither Tuchel. Yeah, not me. So let's leave it there. <laughs> Fair enough. See, I, I, will, I will say this because I don't think I've had a chance to talk about this. It, it, there's no way he would have known that Tuchel wouldn't have been there when they started writing this book months and months and months ago, right? So the publishing before the World Cup, just from like a, a, a commercial perspective, makes sense. But to include some bits in there that were, I, I wouldn't say like he wasn't swearing him out or anything like that, but like, we're not clearly friendly towards his current manager. If he would have still been here, I think that would be worse than Lukaku's incident last year. It'd be a big story. Uh, it would be, it would, yeah, you're right. It would be a big story. You know, we'd be 
it would be this press conference, wouldn't it, coming up because it was done uh-huh. in the break. Um, it would be the, one of the first questions, yeah. And it would be, we'd have, we've just been talking about Steve Atkins. In the in the meantime, we'd have also been talking to Steve Atkins about how the club feel about it and, and all sorts like that. Yeah, it, uh, it just, the whole thing, the, the whole, that quote, him doing a book at this stage of his career, the fact that this is a guy who, who shows barely any interest in talking to the press, even when things are going well, let alone things are going badly, and yet he wants to tell all his story in his own words with no one being able to actually ask him any questions or or anything like that, just so it's all from his point of view. All, it all sits badly with me, and it's going to do him... Look, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do want to read a Christian Pulisic book. He's a, he's a huge star, obviously, in the US, and he's a huge star in England, in fairness. Um, but it just it doesn't... It doesn't sit well. And it's not a very clever move. I don't really see what, other than some money, reputationally and everything else, I don't really see what he's going to gain from it at all. Uh, to, to your point, the biggest thing he's going to gain is not having to talk to people he doesn't want to about this. This is his way of getting it out in the public. And to your point, there are pros and cons to it. And I'm pretty sure he's aware of that. I'm always very suspicious of people who only like talking one way without having anything the other way whether it's so, Christian Pulisic or anybody else. What about Juventus? Him and Weston yeah, look, McKinney going to link up? Uh, look, uh, Juventus were seemed to be sort of a something that was bubbling around during the summer. Um, Pulisic was offered places. I think there were talks about him going and stuff. It, it was one of those that just didn't happen, but you can see it picking back up in January. I mean, look, the thing from Pulisic's point of view is he's got an opportunity, whether he plays much at Chelsea between now and then or not, he's got an opportunity at the World Cup to massively change the course of his career if he wants to. Because if he, even if, I know United States are having a very tough time, a bit like England at the moment, but if Pulisic can just have one fabulous game or do something that, that catches everybody's attention at that World Cup, World Cups do lead... You don't have to do a lot at World Cup, actually, to, to get a big move. One moment can really, like I say, produce that big move. And I think the World Cup will be massive for him in, in terms of where his sort of career path goes there onwards. It's it's what Soccerdomics tells you not to do, is <laughs> to buy players after the World but everybody Cup. Does. But, uh, everybody still does. I mean, everybody's been saying that since Italia 90, don't buy players yeah. after the World Cup. And yeah, everybody always does. Uh, what One that popped up, um, you know, I think kind of just as the transfer window closed and I think some of the uncertainty around the manager changed is, is around Trev, right? Um, yeah. Trev's a guy who I think, you know, really played a great season yeah. last year. I mean, I, I, I just came away so impressed with him. And it's not without mistakes, of course, but, you know, he's still a relatively young footballer playing at the highest level in the Premier League and the Champions League, uh, scored goals for Chelsea. But it just didn't, it doesn't feel like he's, He's long for Chelsea at this stage of his career, and that can all change. Obviously, you get a couple of good performances under you, and maybe you're you, you become a starter. But uh, it, are, do you know anything about you know potential moves for him at this stage? It's difficult to judge him at the moment because, like like we said, we're almost starting again with Potter now, and I know he didn't play start that first game with Potter, but I would imagine he'll get a chance under under Potter, um, and that he'd want to have a look at him. Um, I felt for whatever reason, and I'm not quite sure why I can't put my finger on one instance, I felt that there was a point at last season when he lost Tuchel's trust, um, which I thought was a bit harsh on him because I agree with you. I thought he had an excellent season and yes, he made mistakes, but I don't think he made 
any more mistakes than some other defenders. Um, yeah. Uh, but he, for whatever reason, and to, don't get me wrong, I know that Tuchel was, was really impressed with him and really liked him, but he lost that bit of trust from him. And I, I, I couldn't quite understand why. Um, and so if Tuchel was still at the club, I, I would certainly be saying, I, I think a January loan or a January move is probably the most likely. I'd be reticent to say that now that Potter's come in because I just don't really know what, how that, that's going to play out at the moment. I would hope he gets a chance under, under Potter. Um, and I think I think he deserves a chance. You know, I think he's as deserving as a chance as, as other people. Um, and I would like to see it go well for him because I think he's he's just been a model of how a young player should try and take a chance at a club when everyone had probably written him off a couple of years ago. Me included. I put myself in that as well. I didn't see him coming through. And he's proved people like me wrong. So one way or the other, I hope it works out for him. Um, yeah. And I think there was... He reacted to someone on Twitter the other day I saw. He reacted to a message on Twitter um, where I think someone had put something rubbish up about a game being played and the first team losing a game when the first team weren't even in at training and someone said, oh, Chalabar will have made mistakes. And I think Trevor re- responded on Twitter and kind of said, oh, it's always Trevor, isn't it? That probably hints at a little bit of frustration on his side at the moment that he's frustrated because he he stayed, he probably thought about leaving in the summer. We know he thought, we know he thought about leaving. Let's not beat around the bush. And, and was convinced to stay and have chances. And at the moment, I'd imagine he's a little bit frustrated, but hopefully there are chances there for him. Are we potentially going to do that thing where we go and sign all the former managers players with Moises Caicedo <laughs> potentially coming in? Are we, we pre-bought Kukurea. Uh, we sadly pre-sold pre-bought. <laughs> Gilmore, who, who Phil at Chelsea Youth is determined will come back as he's predicting the future to play for Graham Potter at Chelsea. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? I don't think I don't like it when managers do that. I think if you look at the best managers when they move upwards, they actually don't often do that. Klopp didn't start buying all his old players uh, at Liverpool. Uh, Pep, I don't think started buying all his old players at, at City. I'm sure people can. I'm thinking off the top of my head. I'm sure there'll be people who can throw examples at me. But I actually think. There's, there's reasons why certain players work in certain clubs at certain times. And are we still here? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think going from Brighton to Chelsea is a massive leap. And that's not to say that no Brighton player can do it because Cucurella started well and that there might be other players who can. But I, I wouldn't expect Graham to just go and sign a load of Brighton players, put it that way. Um, and I think if you're a top, manager when you get that top club i think the really good managers who have the great success probably realize that certain players were good at a certain moment in a certain club look at basuma at tottenham you can't get in the team um so it, it's it's a big difference when you you change these clubs so um i mean let's see but i i maybe maybe one more maybe one more and obviously casado is an, an easy easy one to look at because of the sort of midfield situation at chelsea but if i was chelsea I'd be looking higher than, than Casido. And I think they certainly in the first instance are looking higher than Casido. Any others that are on the radar for January? We know about January. some of the bigger names that, that won't happen yeah. uh, for, for January, obviously. Yeah. Look, I think January, they will certainly have a, a look around depending on, on where the team are at the moment. 
I, this feels like an excuse, and I'm sorry, but obviously with the change of manager and us not having played any Premier League games, and a lot is going to be dependent yeah. on the next few weeks in terms of that, um, and things will become a little bit clearer at where he's looking. But you know, the, the big targets, the Bellingham, the Rices, the Inkuku at, at Leipzig, the possibility of going for a goalkeeper. I can't see any of them happening in January. Can't see any of them happening in January. So we're, January is going to be more about whether there's an obvious thing they need to fit Graham Potter's style, I think, whether there's an obvious gap that he can't play one certain way he wants to, or there's an obvious gap somewhere. Um, I actually thought Chelsea probably didn't need to do quite as much business as they did in the summer, given that it now turns out that they made the managerial change. January is going to be a strange old window after the World Cup. I, I, I'm sure they'll look and they'll look, and because it's a new ownership and a new manager, there'll there'll be a lot of ideas floating around. But um, I would suspect they'd be better to to hold fire and go for the really big big guys in in the summer and and actually spend that from now until then preparing the way, which I'm told they are. You know, I did an article today that I think Bowley is now trying to make relationships around Jude Bellingham to relationships that some of the other clubs have been able to make much earlier uh, because of the nature of Chelsea's takeover. I think Bowley's in the process of trying to make those relationships. He'd be much better off spending the next four months fostering those relationships towards trying to do something there and maybe Declan Rice or something than, than trying to plug gaps in January would be my personal opinion. Well, but I'm excited. Departures, you know, if all of a sudden they can sell Ziyech and Pulisic in, in January because of the World Cup, then they might feel they have to bring in some sort of wide play because you can't lose two and not bring anybody in. Well, I'm excited for the new club medical chief announcement video from the comms <laughs> team uh, that they can practice on until we get those signings. But hey, Matt, we appreciate all your time and and uh, helping kind of wrap up everything for us over the week. It's been super uh, interesting as we laughed about nothing's happened, yet so much has. And that is why you have almost an hour-long podcast with us. So thank you. Exactly. Cheers, guys. Good to see you. Awesome. All right, Chelsea fans, more content coming at you this week. Get ready for the Crystal Palace match at the weekend. Football is back, and so are we. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>